Hey, welcome to Equippers Church Sermon of the Week. My name is John Sparrow. I'm the lead pastor here at Equippers Church, and I'm thrilled you're tuning in. I believe the message you're about to hear is going to encourage you, inspire you, and equip you for life. If you'd like to know more about Equippers Church and ways to partner with us, please visit equipperscc.com. God bless. Uh, we're going to continue our series called Building Bold. Um, before we get into it, I'm going to pray. Would you guys pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence today. Uh, we thank you that your Holy Spirit uh, is here. And you have come to lead us into all truth. And So right now we acknowledge you. And uh, God, I ask that more than anything that we've sung today, more than anything that I could say today, uh, that you would meet us in our own known language for what we need for this day. And uh, you'd open hearts, you open minds to your good news. And uh, we trust you. We look to you as head of this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for forgiving my father for his announcements. We have to take communion again. Do you have to do it again? No, okay, you're covered. Still works. Um, Look, uh, Nehemiah, we're, we're looking at the life of Nehemiah over the, these few weeks. Um, we got uh, this week and two more weeks after this week. And uh, if you haven't listened or you weren't here last week, please go to our YouTube channel and uh, check out my dad's message from last week. It was brilliant. It was really, really good. Who, who appreciated last week's message? Um, way to kick us off. And uh, we're going we're gonna to keep going. And uh, one thing I, I love about Nehemiah is that it's a, it's a great problem-solving story. He, he acknowledged uh, a problem on a macro level, a large-scale issue, was that the worship had been restored and the temple had been restored in Jerusalem, but it was without walls to protect it. And so, yes, there was worship and there was a restoration there, but really that was only going to last so long if there wasn't a rebuilding of the walls to, to protect it. And so... Nehemiah, if you weren't here last week, was a successful government employee. He was the cupbearer to the king. And so he was successful. He was close with the king, one of his most intimate friends. And uh, Nehemiah gets word that his city has been, the walls have been broken down and it has not been restored in the way that he assumed it was. And so he gets sad. He gets bummed out and and uh, so sad that after four months, he can't remind his face anymore. His face is sad, and the king sees his countenance and, and says, Nehemiah, you're sad. And I said, well, I can't shake this thing. The walls of my city have been broken down, and I feel that I need to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and it's beautiful the way that the king backs Nehemiah, King Artaxerxes, and he, he gives him the resource, the permits, and, and the hands to actually go with him and provide a way for Nehemiah to take on the building of the wall. It's a beautiful story. Uh, I love that Nehemiah is a pragmatic leader. Uh, anybody pragmatic? You, you're, you're a bit more logistical. Any spirit-led pragmatics in the room? Right? Uh, we get the bad rap because we like think things through and uh, you got to be spirit-led. Nehemiah was a spirit-led pragmatic leader. And uh, how many know that it's fairly easy to look at the, the macro or the big picture of the world and desire change, right? Would, just by a raise of hand, who would just look at the big picture and more hands than that, please. Um, you, you just desire some sort of change. Anyone just straight up content? Uh, um, so so it, it's pretty easy to, to, to look at the way things are. And I think things are headed in a really good direction, to be honest. I think this is the best time and easiest time to be a Christian that we've ever lived in in history. 
I think that the gospel is going forth with power. The church is growing. We heard that last week. And people are getting saved and redeemed. And there's a lot of hope in the world. And, uh, but we can still see things that get us a certain way, can't we? And for each of us, it's a bit different. For each of us, uh, it's a bit different that just gets us. That we see it and we can't shake it. And like Nehemiah, months go by and you can't shake it. And uh, so as a church, we, we kind of have this belief or this saying that we use uh, every once in a while that we believe macro change, so big picture change, actually comes by micro influence. Macro change, if you're taking notes, my wife's taking notes, she gets lunch. Um, are you taking notes? I'm on one today, actually. Oh, I do, yeah, yeah I'll do that, yeah. Um, so macro change, if you want to see a change in the world, it just comes by micro influence. That's why I love being a part of a local church. I actually really enjoy leading a church. I love being a part of a church because where else during my week do I get to get together with this many people and have this much opportunity to see change happen on an ongoing basis? For, I don't know about you, it doesn't happen much else in my life where we can come into an atmosphere where the presence of God is and there's encouraging worship and there's an atmosphere of life and the, the word of God is preached and week in and week out, the amount of testimonies that leave this room that say, man, I walked out different than I walked in. To me, that's micro-influence. And the children that come into our kids' church and who knows their home life, who knows what's going on behind the scenes, and they come into an environment on the Sundays, and there's leaders that say, you're loved, your life matters, and they give them an opportunity to flourish. To me, that's that micro-influence that's ultimately going to make a macro change. Amen. You agree? So it's really easy to get caught up on this big picture stuff, and sometimes it leaves us a bit, a bit disabled, disoriented, because how the heck do you take a piece out of that big pot? But Nehemiah does it, and we're going to talk about uh, that today, his, his micro-influence that ultimately led to macro-change. And so Nehemiah gets a burden, and uh, he gets the resource, and, then, and he goes to, to scope out the wall, and it picks up in Nehemiah chapter 3. I'm not, I don't have a slide for this. Uh, that's the slide for that. Um, and, but I'm going to read the whole of chapter 3, and I'm just going to tell you now, it's probably going to be one of the most boring passages of scriptures you'll ever hear preached from this platform. It's repetitive, it's mundane, there's a lot of details, but there is so much power in it, and I'm going to explain why. So if you have a Bible, you can read along. If not, uh, just listen and uh, try your best to not fall asleep. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 3. Verse 1, Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to work. Everyone say, went to work. Went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it, set its doors in place, building as far as the tower of the hundred, which they dedicated and as far as the tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zechariah, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hesena. They laid its beam and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Mishalom, son of Berkiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, and I'm just going to continue down to verse 7. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Malaysia and Gibeon and Jared and Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor. Uziel, son of Hananiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. Continuing on, next to that, they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Continuing down to verse 10, adjoining 
this, Jedediah, son of Harumpha, that's a great name, Harumph, made, re- here, here, get this, he, remade, he, he made repairs opposite of his house, and Hattush, son of, big word name, made repairs next to him, uh, continuing down, verse 17, next to him, there were repairs made by the Levites, and 18, next to him, there were repairs made by their fellow Levites, next to him, Ezra, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section, continuing on, next to him, Baruch, son of Zubai, he repaired that section. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, repaired another section. We're only halfway through, guys. Then next to him, there were priests that repaired that section. And then beyond them, Benjamin and Hassanah made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, son of, they made repairs in front of their house. Next to him, next to him, next to him, next to them, repairs opposite of their house, next to him. Next to him, made repairs opposite his living quarters, they're switching things up. Next to him, verse 32, and between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. Give it up for that passage of scripture. Powerful. What the heck was that? That was all God. He sealed it with a Tinkerbell noise. Uh, yeah, good job. Next to him, across from their house, names we can't pronounce over and over again, repetitive and logistical. And uh, I'm just going to give the end of the story away now. The wall gets built. Woo! Woo! The, wall, the wall gets built. That's where we're going here with Nehemiah. The wall gets built. But I, I, I would say that this mundane and repetitive chapter of Nehemiah is debatably the most important chapter in Nehemiah. It's repetitive, and it's, it's all about being ne- just next to him, next to him, next to him, and just building something across from the house. And I, I would say, and from my reading of Nehemiah, this is the most important passage of Nehemiah. Because if God's going to speak a, a public vision, so Nehemiah has a vision, correct? That vision must be owned personally by people. And so there's a group of people, a large group of people, that God also engages in the prophetic word that was given to Nehemiah, the the prophetic unction of Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. And if if you're taking notes, uh, I want you to write this down. The prophetic word must turn into prophetic work. (laughs) Why is Nehemiah 3 the most important part? It's because I've seen a lot of people stand up on a platform and get a prophetic word. And the people underneath the prophetic word are not willing to do the prophetic work. (laughs) And so here's a group of people that have been engaged and empowered by Nehemiah to do prophetic work. And I lost half of you because that's not a popular thing to talk about. Right? Because we love the idea that God's word goes forth and it will not return void. Yes and amen. I believe that he who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. But... (laughs) I can't shake the theme throughout scripture where God speaks to someone and then they have to do work. You you can't read the Bible and and say, no, that's not the way it works. What happens is God speaks and then you, you, you just find the closest lounge chair and then you watch God do it. Look, I love that idea. And I would sign up for that cult. But (laughs) that's not the way it works according to scripture. There's a prophetic word that comes, a message from God, a vision 
for his people that turns into prophetic work. It's work. It's laborious. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. And Nehemiah's vision was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, we see how that gets outworked through these individuals. And what I love about this is that there was something alive already in these people, obviously. When Nehemiah, as a messenger, came and said, hey, we're going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, there was people signing up left and right to take ownership because I think something was alive already inside of them. I think there was a desire already, and I think that's true for us in this room. I think all of us have some sort of God dream. We all have some sort of unction from the Holy Spirit that is just waiting to be awakened, waiting to be called forth. And so that was his dream. That was a vision. And and I want to take Nehemiah's prophetic work in a, and apply it to us in a new covenant context. That's where we're going today. And uh, the Old Testament is a type and shadow of what would come in the New Testament. So we can interpret the, the Old Testament through what we know in the New Testament. Right? If you're new to this experience, there is 66 books in our Bible. The, the first 44, is that correct? 44 is the Old Testament. The last 22 is the New Testament. And uh, we know that the New Testament is a sign of what we live in now. This place we are with God now in the Old Testament was kind of the journey to get there. And so if Nehemiah's vision was to save a city by building a wall, I, I think this is Jesus's vision. Jesus's vision is to save souls by building a church. I, I genuinely believe that. If Nehemiah, in the model that he used, was to rally a group of people on a common mission to rebuild a wall, I think Jesus's mission is to save souls. It's for the sake of people. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And the way that he does that is through the church. It's through his people, his body. And uh, you can throw up, don't throw up. You can put up uh, Matthew 28. I think I have that. If you go next slide. Oh, is it not changing down there? Yeah, next slide. No, I don't have it. So here's Jesus's vision. You just leave it there. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And look, this, this church that you're sitting in this morning and a part of has seasons of clarified vision, but that vision is always underneath the umbrella of that vision. Like we don't do anything outside of Jesus' vision for humanity to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey the commands of God. And so, yes, there's seasons of identified vision, but really it's all under the umbrella of Jesus' vision for the earth. And the other thing I know about this passage is that nations are made of people. Would you agree? Like, I, I could be so bold and say, I am the United States of America. Because without people, what is it? <laughs> right? No? I am Equippers Church. Because without people, what is it? Right? It's just land. and it, it, Like, wh why have a nation if it's not made up of people? So if we can dissect what Jesus is saying, is in the macro vision of his plan for the world, in the future and the destiny of humanity, to baptize nations, that means that we what? Baptize people. <laughs> that means that we disciple people 
And eventually that accumulates to nations, but it doesn't work in reverse order. It's the people. And what we see in Nehemiah chapter 3 is these families one by one. One next to the other, next to the other, next to the other, next to the other. It says it 22 times in that passage. Next to him, next to him, next to him. Individual portions of a wall that accumulate to fortify a city. And so the way Jesus outworks his great commission is just one after the next, after the next, after the next. And soon a nation is baptized. Isn't that good news? And uh, this is what I mean by this. Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, verse 18 through 22. Now all of us come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, here it is, we are his house. Together, we are his house. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So what, what God was building through a physical location in Nehemiah, he's building through a personal location in our context. So we as individuals are making up the temple of God. We are the city of God, the people of God. And so I want to just, I have three points. This is a really easy three-point sermon. Anybody excited for that? Easy three points. The first point being, he uses me to build his house. And uh, you just said, well, I thought I was supposed to build his kingdom. No, you're actually not called to build God's kingdom. You're not called to build God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is revealed through the house of God, which is his church. That's what the Bible says, that the kingdom is revealed as we build his establishment on the earth to be conduits of his presence. So the kingdom is revealed, the church is built. So he actually uses us together, accumulatively, to build his house so that his glory can be revealed, so that his kingdom can be revealed on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're actually called and he uses us to build his house. What do I mean by that? First Peter Chapter 2, 4 through 5. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. You are a living stone. You aren't just a boring brick. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're not just a boring brick. You're not just a boring brick. <laughs> Spouses looking at each other like, okay. <laughs> In faith. <laughs> the most faith-filled thing you've said all day. You're not just a boring brick, honey. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you're not just a boring brick. You are a living stone. You're a living being which means that your life actually matters. And in this big picture of what God's building on the earth, it's made up of living beings, of people that have a story, that have a past, that have a future, have a destiny, people who are on a journey just like you and just like me, people who are living beings. Every life matters according to First uh, Peter. And so what, what we're building in, in life, it, it, it matters. 
And the saddest thing to me is that the richest place in the world is a graveyard. <laughs> right? Really, if you think about it, if you walk through a graveyard, there lies the talent, there lies the dream, there lies the purpose that was never fulfilled. So in that graveyard, there's so much potential, right? But people just take it to the grave because they're often too nervous and not bold enough to actually do something with God, the gift God has given them. And so the richest place, the, 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 the place of most innovation, the most creativity is sadly a graveyard. But what good is it there? And so when we're talking about building bold throughout this series, we're talking about doing something that makes our life count for something. We're not just talking about being cogs in a wheel. We're talking about being living stones to make our life count for something, not just leaving an inheritance for our children, but a legacy. I don't want to just leave my kids some money, even though they'll probably say that differently. <laughs> We're talking legacy. We're talking about preparing something on the earth so it's better when we leave than the way we found it. Amen? He uses me to build his house. Uh, number two, I am a minister. I am a minister. You say that. That's correct. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says this. Now these are the gifts Christ has given to his church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will be no longer tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. If you ever wondered why we're called the Quippers Church, this is, this is why. This is our passage, Ephesians 4. And the, and the whole point is this, that each part does its own special work. Each part does its own special work. We have a saying around here, we are who we are. And it's not passive. It's not lackadaisical, I just am who I am. No, we are equippers because we are as individuals. And so whatever passion you have in your life, whatever you do for a career, whatever you do with your family, that's equippers. We are together who we are individually. And the point of that is beautiful. It's so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. How many want to live in an environment like that? Yeah. It's healthy, it's growing, and it's full of love. And how many know it's not only healthy things that grow? <laughs> There's a lot of leadership books and texts right, that I've read that say, you know, if it's healthy, it'll grow. But I, I would beg to differ that if it's unhealthy, it will grow even faster. <laughs> you ever had a backyard? <laughs> right? It's not just health that grows. It's the unhealthy. It's the cancers. It's the weeds. It's the things that we desire not to grow that usually grow at the most rapid rate. And so this is crucial. This is important that the body is healthy and growing and ultimately full of love. But whose responsibility is that according to Paul in Ephesians 4? Is it the apostles? 
Is it the prophets? Is it the pastors? Is it the teachers? Is it the evangelists even? No, no, no. It's not. Those are just in place to encourage people. Just to say, hey, keep going. Don't give up. Here's the word. And whatever we do from a platform, that's just a very small piece of the pie to encourage people. But according to Ephesians 4, the responsibility is entrusted to the body of believers. It's like we're here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so it's actually a group effort. If we can reference back to Nehemiah, it's the next to him, next to him, next to him, next to him, and next to him. It's the body of believers that guarantee an environment that is healthy, growing, and full of love. And ultimately, as we build the church, what is our greatest goal? It's to be more and more like Jesus so that the whole body is healthy and growing. And I love about this, and when we're talking about Ministry. I'm a minister. Say that one more time. I'm a minister. Ministry, if you're taking notes, ministry simply means to serve. <laughs> ministry literally is translated to serve. And so we're never more like Jesus when we serve. And the best thing about this is that we can all be in ministry. We can all be in full-time ministry even because we all can serve. Amen? Amen. We're never more like Jesus than when we serve. And Really what I'm believing for more than anything, when we, we talk about revival, we talk about moves of God and which we're contending for, but I, I'm really contending for a serving revolution. Nothing is going to flip this world upside down than, than more than serving. <laughs> it's how Jesus did it, right? He, he didn't come to the world to be served, but to serve and offer himself as a ransom for many. And so really what I pray for, what I believe for, and what I hope this church gives a platform for is a revolution of serving. The other powerful thing that serving does, is it eliminates power differentials. Where in society, there's hierarchies. There's the powerful and the less powerful. There's the oppressor and the oppressed. There is, however you want to fill in the gaps for the way you interpret society, there is typically a, a, a power divide, but a power differential. But what serving does is it eliminates the power differential. And you can just imagine Nehemiah. As the one who's been entrusted with this project, who could have tooted his own horn? I've never said that my whole life. <laughs> it sounded so funny coming out, didn't it? Tooted his own horn. <laughs> um, but, but what Nehemiah did as, as the foreman of the project, he went around and, he's, and he basically, God chose me just like he chose you to rebuild this wall. So let's do it together. And by serving the welfare of Jerusalem, that eliminated the power differential among them. And I think that if anything's going to speak to culture, it's when we eliminate the power differential. Can someone say amen? amen? Serving puts everyone on the same level. We are all ministers. And uh, number three, as we come to a close, the, the band can come. Um, how good was the acoustic band today? Yeah, isn't that awesome? We just love switching it up every once in a while. And uh, it's a big, giant sing-along. Isn't that fun? I love being part of a sing-along. And uh, good idea, Wit, for facilitating Acoustic Sunday. Um, so I, I, I'm part of the solution. Come on, say that. I'm part of the solution. And this is how we bring this big macro issue down to a really micro level. Because what did we say? That... Macro change comes by micro influence. Macro change comes by micro influence. And 
Each person in this room has five types of relationships in their life. Five types of people in your life. Family, friends, work colleagues, neighbors, and acquaintances. There's five demographics in our life represented typically at all time. And what I believe is that these five types of people in our lives are actually the wall that God has chosen us to build. I I think really what God wants to do in and through our lives is to make a difference in our family, in our friends, in our work colleagues, in our acquaintances, and in our neighbors. And look, it's not that sexy. (laughs) And and I know I'd get a lot more cheers and there'd probably be a lot more people that came to our church and we talked about something a bit higher and loftier but it's just not the story of the Bible. (laughs) Jesus was seeking and saving that which was lost. By what? Eating with tax collectors and sinners and having relationship with humanity, not considering equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, according to Philippians 2, but humbled himself in the form of a servant so that the world might be transformed. And so we have... We have family, friends, work colleagues, neighbors, and acquaintances, and I I, I think that the whole Bible, this whole gospel is all about people. I think it's all about the people that are right in front of us, and I just wanted to ask you this week, in light of micro-influence, who are you going to call? (laughs) Come on, this is like really practical, and it's not going to get bigger and sexier than I'm about to say, okay? Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. I knew it. Yeah, with the boots and the whole thing. (laughs) Who are you going to text? The amount of times I've sent a text message, and just so you you know something about me personally, I, you know, I've talked about my time with with God in the morning, and however that works for you, awesome, do it. Spend time with Jesus. But typically, I get interrupted. And uh, this is how I'm wired. This is how I'm wired, and to each their own. I I don't get interrupted by, forgive me for this, like praying for the nation. I I hope there's people that do. I I don't necessarily get interrupted by this burden to even pray for the state, even though I do sometimes. And I don't get it. I don't pray for the world. I don't. What typically happens is Jesus interrupts my scheduled programming to text a friend. That's usually what happens. And so some of you might get a text at 5.30 in the morning. Turn your ringer off. But the amount of times that text message goes out and a message comes back, oh man, did I need that today. And who knows what they were up against? Who knows what the night before was like? And my 52-character text that says, hey man, I love you, I'm praying for you today, You've got this on a micro level is making the world a better place. Just the thought, who are you going to text this week? Who are you going to throw, show radical generosity to this week? Who are you going to go above and beyond for? Who are you going to show sacrifice to this week? Family, friend, neighbor, acquaintance, work colleague. Who's it going to be? Because each of these pictures of the obedience are, are changing the bigger picture. And I love this, a commentary about 
Nehemiah, it says this, the temple in Jerusalem was not only the religious heart of the nation and the place of pilgrimage of Jews throughout the world, it was also the political, social, musical, and cultural heart of Jerusalem, as well as the place of celebration and feasting. The reason for all this, of course, that Israel's God, Yahweh, had promised to live there. It was, many believe, the place where heaven and earth met. And what do we know now? That it's not bound to a physical location. Look, pray for Israel, but that's not where God lives anymore. <laughs> he lives in the heart of humanity. Like, this is where heaven and earth meet. And the beautiful thing about being on this mission to seek and save that which was lost one by one is that each individual, you know, is actually the epicenter. It's actually the epicenter of political, social, musical, and the cultural heart of God. You know, that each person you call forth into their destiny is the epicenter of musical innovation. Each person individually is now the epicenter of political transformation. Each individual that is alive and has breath in their lungs has a gift set from God that is no longer bound to walls in a single location. They are flourishing anywhere, everywhere, all the time where heaven and earth meets because God promised to live there in his people. And uh, this is the way I want to finish this up is throughout Nehemiah the 3, there's this really profound statement. That, that says across from their house. Did you hear me say that a ton of times? Right, there was this one guy and, and uh, the call goes forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So it's this big call, this big vision. And there's this guy, Nehemiah, that shows up and what do they do? They open their front door and they see a portion of wall that's broken. And they think, I could do that, right? But then we, we read 22 times, it says, next to him, another guy opened his front door. And he looked at the, qual, the, the wall across the street from his house, and he said, I could do that. Another time, a, another guy next to him opened the front door of his house, and he looked across the street. And the wall was broken. He, he has the audacity to think, I bet you. And there's one guy that calls his daughters, hey, girls. You see that portion of wall across the street from our house that's broken? I bet you that we could fix that part of the wall. And then 22 times, next to him, next to him, next to them, next to them, next to him, they rebuilt the wall that was in front of their house. And look, I, I've got to be brave enough to just say, maybe the mission of God is right underneath your nose. <laughs> maybe it's as easy as opening the door in the morning and say, you know what? I could love my neighbor today. And in the big picture, the end of the story is the wall gets rebuilt. But the way it gets rebuilt is that each person wakes up in the morning, they open their front door, there's an opportunity to rebuild, reestablish, redeem, and reconcile. And they say, I bet I could do that. And then the person next to you, the chair, the chair next to you, next to him, and next to her, and next to her, and next to him, and next to her, they just say, I bet bet I could do that. Then all of a sudden, there's macro change, but how does it come by? Micro influence. Micro influence. One person just saying, I bet I could do that. Let's stand to our feet as we close. I'm going to read this passage of scripture that I have read many times. Um, 
but every time it gets me so darn good. Uh, you can go back to that last passage. Oh, I guess that was on the screen the whole time. Um, Matthew 10, 5 through 15, the message says this. Jesus sent his 12 harvest hands out with this charge. Don't begin by traveling to some far off place to convert unbelievers. And don't try to be dramatic by tackling some public enemy. Go to the lost, confused people right here in the neighborhood. Tell them that the kingdom is here. Here it is. Bring health to the sick. Raise the dead. Touch the untouchables. Kick out the demons. You've been treated generously, so live generously. Don't think you have to put on a fundraising campaign before you start. You don't need a lot of equipment. You are the equipment, and all you need to keep that going is three meals a day. Travel light. Isn't that good? Look. Don't try and make a big spectacle out of this thing. <laughs> Don't try and make it more grandiose than the intention really was supposed to be. And look, if you call, feel called to foreign missions, more power to you. And I hope you respond and obey. But don't expect to go somewhere else and do something that you aren't able to do at home. Can I say that again? Don't expect to go somewhere else and have some anointing that you don't have at your own house. The lowest hanging fruit is on the mission field. That's so offensive. But can we all just agree the hardest fruit is our family. The hardest hearts are our neighbors. The most awkward conversations are our friends. And yes, I hope that you go and you minister and you travel. But that's easy, man. <laughs> that's easy. I've done it over and over again. It's amazing. It's fun. It, we're, doing, we're putting together a mission trip to the Philippines next year. Women only. But... Um, but yeah, Pat's going to take the men. And look, that's our heartbeat. That's our belief. But can we, we, let's not be so foolish to think that we'll do something elsewhere that we're just not willing to do at home. He's basically saying, hey, there, there's, a, there's a call to rebuild the walls. <laughs> and you opened your door. And there was a dead body on your front doorstep. And you stepped over. And eesh, glad I'm not called to my front porch. Come on. The lost and the confused right here in the neighborhood. A group of people, community of people, the body of Christ who open their front door and say, you know what, I, I think I could do that. I think today I could love somebody. And you put too much weight on yourself. Come on, you're not God. God does the saving. Jesus does the reconciling. The Holy Spirit brings the conviction. All you do is send the text, make the call, open your arms, open your home, feed the meal, give the money, whatever you got to do. God does the heavy lifting. Amen. So let's close our eyes. and I want to pray for us as we wrap up today. Jesus, we, we love you so much. And I, I know that you have a big vision. <laughs> we expect for you to touch the earth. The promise is that the earth will be full of your glory as the waters cover the sea. So we're expecting for an outpouring of your glory, an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. But what I know is that in the beginning, you outpoured humanity onto the earth. <laughs> There's been an outpouring, and it happens every time a baby's born, an outpouring of glory to the earth, an outpouring of the wisdom and revelation of God to the earth. Every time a baby is born, it's your heartbeat. It's your message system. It's your delivery system. It's your chosen way. 
There'd be life on life, people on people, reconciling the world to Jesus. So God, I ask today that you would give us a heart to rebuild the walls that have been broken in our lives, to rebuild the family name, to rebuild the family legacy, to rebuild our workplace where the morale has been down and it's a place of hopelessness. God, I ask that you would help us to rebuild that environment, that you'd help us to rebuild a culture of hope and prosperity. And God, in our, in our, in our, our friendships, God, that we would be the ones who don't entertain gossip, that we would be the ones who build up and don't tear down. And we'd be the ones who cheerlead and empower and resource people to live their dreams and go after their destiny. And God, would you help us to be people that live micro-minded, that every day, every time our foot steps on the ground, that we have the ability and the power and the authority to make a difference, that we don't have to put on some big campaign, that we don't have to have this grandiose experiment and marketing campaign, but we are the equipment that you've chosen to use. As with hands lifted, if you're comfortable with that, just in a posture of receiving, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would empower your church. Holy Spirit, would you empower your church as able ministers of a new gospel? Holy Spirit, would you empower your church? Come on, what would it look like for a church to be fully mobilized? For each person to just own their portion of the wall. For each person to just own their portion of the purpose. For each person to to see the vision and apply it to their front yard. God, by your Holy Spirit, would you empower your church? I thank you for a fresh wind of your spirit. I thank you for a fresh wind of anointing on each and every person that's in this room. May it no longer be about a platform, but about every person doing their designated role for the rebuilding and reestablishing of humanity unto God. In Jesus' name. God, would you help us to see as you see. Forgive us when we get paralyzed by the macro issues. When we get paralyzed by the could be's and should be's and opinions and whatever it may be, God, I ask that you'd forgive us and reinstate us in our authority and our influence on a micro level. In Jesus' name. You help us to serve. You help us to serve. In Jesus' name. Well, I pray that you are feeling encouraged, inspired, and equipped to take on whatever you may be facing in this life. And hey, why don't you consider joining us? We meet every Sunday at the Clark Center in Arroyo Grande at 10 a.m., and it's always a good time. We'd love to have you with us. And for any more information, ways you can partner with us, please visit equipperscc.com. God bless. Ready?